Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Porkhouse Church. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, happy Advent. I wish we could say Merry Christmas, but it isn't Christmas yet. It will start. Christmas tide begins on the 24th, so happy Advent to you. If you have a Bible, leather-bound or pleather, vegan or any sort, on your phone, that's fine too. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 9, sword drill, so hope you're ready. Um, it was Christmas morning. I was 11 years old, and I only asked for one thing that year, a bench press. Yeah, I was going to get my preteen physique chiseled that year, right? Um, and uh, I really thought that like my wimpy preteen physique could, to, could turn into something impressive. So early Christmas morning, I rushed down the stairs with hope and expectation. And uh, we all sat around, my two sisters, myself, my mom, and my dad sat around the tree. And the way that we did Christmas presents on Christmas morning is we sat around the tree, each of us grabbed a present, and we would open those presents at the same time. Well, I opened each presence, and uh, none of them was a bench press. I sat there as my sister unwrapped a portable DVD player, and I unwrapped socks. I was like, what a rip. Are you serious? I did not get what I wanted that Christmas. My parents gave me uh, weightlifting gloves, and I was like, do you care more about my soft hands than my chiseled physique? Like, what is happening here? I'm in the sixth grade. This is really important. And so we, uh, we finished unwrapping our presents, and uh, I went downstairs into the basement because my dad sent me there to grab a thing, few things for breakfast. And as I walked down those stairs, honestly, it felt like a, a march of defeat. And as I walked down the, the stairs in absolute hopelessness and despair, there it was in all of its glory, a bench press wrapped in a bow. My poor parents spent the entire Christmas Eve, probably the entire night, putting that thing together, right? And this was not what I was expecting. It was what I was hoping for, but in an unexpected way. See, what I hoped for came in a different way than I thought it would. And what we're reading in Isaiah 9 is a people hoping and expecting that God would come into their darkness, that God would come, but he comes in an unexpected way. See, the people of Israel were hoping for the day when their deliverer would come, when their Messiah would come and finally arrive, because what they are experiencing when, when Isaiah pens these words is they are in a land of darkness, in captivity. They are under the oppression of the Assyrian Empire. They have been taken away from their homes and their land, and they've been taken into another land. Where there they are slaves. There they are captives. There they answer another ruler, another king, another uh, slave master. And they are in that land of darkness, waiting for their God to finally arrive. They, they believed that hope, maybe, just maybe, hope would be on the way. And the prophets, like Isaiah, spoke of a day when this Messiah, this warrior king, would come and break the shackles of their oppressor, would break the, the rod that their oppressor used to beat them. They believed that one day a deliverer, a warrior God, would come and set them free, and that light would come into their darkness. But it comes in an unexpected way. In Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, we read these words. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Verse 4, for in the day of Midian's defeat, you, God, have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in the battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Advent is about hope. It's about God hoping that this God, this Messiah, this warrior God would come into our darkness. It's about waiting and hoping for God to come into our world and to set us free. It's about hope and hoping that our world would be better. Hope that God would come and set the world right once and for all. See, we long for God to come, don't we? We long for God to come into our darkness, into our land of darkness and defeat. See, our, our hope is that God would put the world back together and set things right. So in this passage, in Isaiah chapter 9, the people are held captive by this Assyrian empire. There are slaves in a foreign land, and they are shackled by a yoke of slavery. It says that there's a, a, a rod that goes uh, across their back like they are slaves, and there's a rod that their uh, oppressor uses to beat them. It even uses graphic language to depict that their enemies and their oppressors are covered in the blood of the innocent. And one day a Messiah will come. One day somebody would come and break that yoke of slavery, break that rod of their oppressor, and he would take the violent blood of the innocent on the clothes of their oppressor, and he would destine it for burning. There would be an end of warfare and slavery and hatred and evil once and for all. In other words, this child who is to be born, this child of hope, this child of advent, this child of anticipation and waiting would be born and overthrow their enemies and, and free them from enslavement. He would bring light into their darkness and the government will not rest on anyone's shoulders because there is one shoulder who can carry the weight of the world government and that is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. See, Isaiah spoke of a day when a child would be born who would sit on a throne, the throne of David, and this throne would be used to execute liberty and freedom from oppression for the people of Israel. But when we read the words of the prophet Isaiah, the people would hang on these words for hundreds of years to, until the first century. Hundreds of years. And over these hundreds of years, the people are still oppressed. There hasn't been someone on the throne of David for hundreds of years. It is sat vacant. There are cobwebs and dust accumulating on this throne as they are anticipating and waiting for this King Messiah to be born. There is no child. There is no king. There is no one sitting on the throne of David for hundreds of years. In fact, since Isaiah penned these words, and the people have gone into uh, exile. There has been no king on the throne of David. And hundreds of years later, they are still oppressed. This time, not by the kingdom of Assyria, but this time in their own land, they are oppressed by the Roman Empire. They are slaves in their own land. They are captive and, and dominated by, by Caesar Augustus. And the people of Israel, hundreds of years later, are still in this land of darkness, wondering if God would ever bring light into their world, wondering if this child would ever come, wondering if there would be finally somebody to liberate them from oppression. But there was still a glimmer of hope. There was hope that one would come and sit on the throne of David, one who would come and liberate them from the, the, the tyranny of these governments of the world. And one night, hundreds of years later, in the darkness of a town called Bethlehem, a young teenage girl entrothed to the love of her life. Well, we're not sure because it's an arranged marriage, but we're, we hope it's the love of her life, right? And she comes to Joseph. She's like, Joseph, I'm pregnant. And he's like, oh my gosh, like we have, we've never, you know, like we've, 
We've never had relations before, right? We're, we're, we're Jewish. Like, we don't do that, right? And um, he's like, how did this happen? She says, well, it's immaculate. It's immaculate. And Joseph's like, it better be Mary. It better be immaculate. She's like, you know what? God came to me in a, in a vision, and he told me that I'm pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And he's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this, right? See, the people were waiting for the, the warrior king, the God of the universe, to come in a child and sit in power on the throne of David. They were waiting for the Messiah to break off the shackles of oppression and destroy their enemies. So how surprised do you think they were when that warrior king, that liberator, the one who would sit on the throne of David, came through an unmarried pregnant teenager? What does this say about our warrior God? What does it say about our God that he comes this way and not another? That he doesn't come into the throne room or or to the palace of Caesar, but he comes in the meek and mild place of Bethlehem, that he comes through an unmarried, poor, peasant, teenage girl on the outskirts of an oppressive empire. How offensive is it to suggest that our God comes immersed in amniotic fluid, that our God comes in unexpected ways of weakness and dependence? He comes eating with sinners. He comes into the brokenness and mess of your everyday life. This is what Jesus is like. This is what our warrior God is truly like. This is unexpected hope and unexpected power. A few months ago, I needed some space in my office. With everything going on here at Pork Hills Church, we have needed a lot more kids' material and production gear and all of that, and so I needed some space to to store all of that. So I did what all of you do, and uh, I went to Amazon.ca, okay? And I ordered four bins, four bins to put all my stuff in. And when they came, uh, and then the next day, because of Prime, thank God for that, it came in this small envelope. And I was like, this must be like a book or like something that maybe Laurel ordered. Like, this can't be these four bins. And I open it up, and they are the bins. They're, they're folded, and you have to like put them together. And when I put these bins together, they were big enough to fit a few small pencils in, not to like put in like production gear and kids material, right? Sometimes things don't come the way we expect, And Jesus does not come the way we expect. We want a warrior king. We want somebody who will come in power and destroy our enemies and and, and destroy them in a bloodbath of violence. This is the God we want. But we, we receive a God who's covered in the blood of birth. A God who's laid in a manger. A God who's weak and helpless and dependent upon this teenage girl to care for his every need. Jesus does not come the way we expect or the way that we want. In fact, Isaiah in another place will say that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. And he had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. See, Advent is about hope. It's about hope for power, hope for domination, hope for victory, that somehow hope will come into our world and it will make it beautiful. It will make it better. Hope that God would have the power to heal our world and make it right. The next verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The Hebrew people are waiting for someone from David's line who would finally sit on that throne. 
They were waiting for a day of liberation, a second exodus, when God would set his people free once and for all. Because God promised to bring them out of the land of Egypt and into the land of Israel, and he would establish them and give them rest from their oppressors. But the throne of David has been vacant for years, and they are in exile for hundreds of years. So the only logical question for us to ask and for them to ask is, where is God? If this God promises to be with us, if he promises to be the God of this people and to sit on this throne, if he promises to set us free from oppressors, then where is God? For hundreds of years he has been silent. For hundreds of years he has not reigned on the throne of David. And now no one sits on that throne, but the throne of Caesar is occupied and powerful. It is an oppressive empire in their midst. So where is God? Where is God? Where is the light that is promised to be dawned? dawned? Where is this child who was promised to us? I love the way that Mark summarizes the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus. He says, quote, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. To us, this just seems like an introductory idea. This just seems like a, like a, a quick note of the pen, But when you understand that in the Roman Empire, there was an inscription that went all over the place. You would see it on everything. And it read like this. The birthday of the God has marked the beginning of good news through him for the world. This is an inscription about Caesar Augustus. So when Mark pens the words, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, this is not a coincidence. This is not just the, the, the mark of a pen. This is a subversive political statement. Luke tells his Christmas story by, by putting it in the place of, quote, the days of Caesar Augustus. This is a powerful and political statement, and this is the announcement of a savior king. What this statement is saying is that Jesus is king and Caesar is not. The Christmas story is a subversive political statement that there is a new king on the scene. And this Lord is enthroned, not in a palace, but in a manger. Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk, once said that Christ always seeks the straw of the most desolate cribs to make his Bethlehem. See, God comes as king, but not as Caesar Augustus. This is a kingdom not of superiority and pompous piety. This is not a kingdom of military power and domination. No, this is a kingdom for outcast shepherds, for peasant parents, tax collectors, and sinners. This is an entirely different kingdom than the kingdoms and systems of the world. The coming of our God came at a great political cost, and the same is true today. When Jesus came into the world, it threatened the powers of his time. It threatened Herod to the extent that he executed all of the, first, the, the young boys in his kingdom. And our political powers do this today. We kill our enemies to change the world. And we count the, the bleeding out of innocent civilians in the street as collateral damage. And this idea comes as a baby into the world who will not change the world by slaughtering his enemies, but by laying his life down for them. This possesses such a threat to the powers of our world. It shakes the very foundations that our Western civilization is built on, that our king comes and he calls us to love our enemies and overcome evil with good. See, this idea caused a political uproar in the time of Jesus. And if we go the way of Jesus, carrying our cross and loving our enemies, it will cause an uproar in our world today. See, the invitation of Jesus is to live strikingly different from the world around us so that we may bear witness to a better kingdom with a better king. This might not be the king you imagined. 
It may not be a powerful king seated on a throne. The king we are waiting may just be a baby born in a feeding trough and exalted on the cross as king of kings. This is our king. This is what our king is like, and he may not come as we expected, but he is far greater than we could have ever imagined. Mary tells us in her Annunciation, um, when the, the angel Gabriel comes to her, he says, quote, he has brought down the rulers from their thrones, and he has lifted up the humble. And yet we would rather look to the mighty on their thrones than look to this weak child in the manger. We'd rather put our hope in political leaders and those who sit on thrones than this supposed godchild. Because in our world it appears that they have the true power. And we'd rather not look to Jesus because Jesus is really just a sentimental idea. It's just a, a, a good hope or something that we, we talk about. But if you want real change, it's going to come from Ottawa and Washington, not Nazareth. I think we still wonder today, can anything good really come from Nazareth? And we dare not say this with our mouths because in our Christianized society, doctrinal correctness is a cardinal virtue. But we say this with our political ballots in one hand and the TV remote in the other to turn up the volume of Fox News or CNN. And we wonder why we cannot hear the God who cries in Bethlehem. We can't imagine a God who is so weak and helpless. So we trade him in for a more suitable leader or politician. We trade in the Messiah, the Christ child, the God of the universe for a politician with a corrupt empire. But Mary reminds us that this child has brought down the rulers from their throne and he has lifted up the humble. Timothy Keller once said that Christmas, like God himself, is both more wondrous and more threatening than we can imagine. He goes on to say that the belief that we can save ourselves, that some political system or ideology can fix the human problem, has only led to more darkness. My friends, Christmas confronts our allegiance. It confronts our faith. Or rather, it confronts our faithfulness. Will we be faithful to Caesar Augustus? Will we bow the knee to him? Or will we look to Jesus, the Christ child in the manger, the weak and helpless one who comes as our king? Will we bow the knee to him or to the empires of this world? Because we need to trust that God comes, and when he does, it looks like Jesus. And that, my friends, takes a great deal of faith or faithfulness. See, they were expecting when Jesus would come, a miraculous production, a display of power, a demonstration of glory, but instead they got a pregnant teenage girl named Mary who claimed to be pregnant with God himself. See, God comes in an unexpected way, and his power is much different than we could imagine. So God not only comes in an unexpected way, but he comes to unexpected people. God came into the world through an unmarried peasant teenage girl. This is scandalous. How could a king come into our world this way? This is not the way that you establish your kingdom. At least it's not the way that I would do it. I would, I would do something significant or get people's attention and do something glorious. But Jesus comes as a baby. The, the, the angel Gabriel tells us that Jesus came for those on whom his favor rests. He came for the outsiders, the poor, the dirty, and the rejected. Brunning Manning writes that Jesus comes not for the super spiritual, but for the wobbly, weak need who know that they don't have it all together, who are not too proud to accept the handout of amazing grace. The Christmas story is about God coming for the broken, the unspiritual, and the down and out. The Christmas story is about God coming for people like you and me. The Christmas story is about God coming in all the places that you and I have ignored. We're so busy for looking for God in the, the spectacular and the significant and the glorious. 
And we can't even see God when he's staring us in the face. We fail to see God in the ordinary, the small, and the simple things of life. We can't imagine that our God would come in power and that it would look like Jesus. But Advent is a season of surprise. It's a season of God showing up where and when we least expect, in a womb, in a barn, as a poor minority in an oppressive empire. Advent is a season to slow down and pay attention, to listen and to look for God in unexpected places. A.J. Swoboda writes this, Christ's birth is always recognized by the lowly, the least, and the less than. It is the people in power like Herod and Pilate who cannot see him. The hope of Christmas is only for those who know that they're lost and need saving. It is for those who know that they are poor and imperfect and are waiting for God's hope to come and to rescue them. Years ago, um, I was in college in Florida, and my friends and I heard of this speaker that we really looked up to had come to the town near us. It was about an hour away, so we got in our car and we drove there. Now, we, we drove there and spent the entire day because it took a little while to get there. And so uh, we w- went out to eat, we had lunch, we went to some shops, uh, and then we got to the venue really early, and we got a good seat, we listened to them, and then we stood in a long, long line to meet them, to take a photo with them. And what never occurred to me until years later is that we drove all of that distance, we got there early, we, we stood in line just to meet one person, just to get a photo with one individual, but there were hundreds of faces that we walked by without noticing or taking a second thought. We were in crowds of people, and none of them seemed impressive. You couldn't find us waiting to meet any of them. But I wonder if Jesus would. I wonder if Jesus would have been more interested in the dozens of homeless people that we walked by without even recognizing I wonder if, if he would have been more interested in the single mom trying to feed her kids while we were eating lunch, or the lady at the restaurant who was so kind to serve us. We had made all the effort just to meet one person because they had something to say, because they were significant and impressive. But that's not who Jesus comes for. He's in search for us. He comes for us, the unimpressive and broken. He comes for the insignificant and lonely. He comes for the sinners and the messed up like you and me. And many today are still waiting for God to come. But the incarnation is God's way of saying, I came for you. I came for you because I love you. I came for you because of my uncalculated, over-the-top, scandalous love for you. The message of the baby born in Bethlehem is that God goes to extreme lengths to save people you'd never expect. He came for the poor and the dirty and the broken and addicted. He came for those we would never expect God to come for. And many today are still waiting for God. They're still hoping that God would show up in their darkness. They're still waiting for God to set them free and to save them. See, many people within our city, the city of Surrey, live in poverty. 50,000 people in Surrey live on little or no income. 12,250 of them are children and youth. The number of homelessness increases in our city every single year. Addiction, crime, homelessness— in our city, increasing every single year. And these are the people that Christ came for. God took on flesh and came for these people in Christmas. And now you are that flesh. You are the body of Christ. You are the advent of God in the world. A light has dawned and good news is proclaimed from the rooftops. God is incarnate and God has flesh and bone. You are the body of Christ, the hope of the world. So the question of Christmas is, will we be what we are? 
Will we be the body of Christ? Will we be the advent of God to those in a land of darkness? During the Second World War, there was a a woman in Paris named Maria. She's now known as Saint Maria of Paris. And this was a woman who, who truly believed one conviction, that we are the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And so during the the Nazi invasion of Paris, she joined the French resistance, and she did everything in her power to care for the Jewish people there in Paris. She she hid them in her homes and did anything that she possibly do for them. And in 1943, she was arrested and put into a concentration camp. And that year, she disguised herself as one of the Jewish women in that camp, and she took her place in the gas chamber. And before she died, she said these words, At the last judgment, I will be asked whether I fed the hungry and clothed the naked. This is a life of one woman who truly believed the advent of God has come into the world. The body of Christ is incarnate, and we are the body of Christ. God took on flesh and blood, but he has made the church his body. We are the body of Christ, the incarnation of God in the world. We are the advent of hope for the people who are longing for it. See, when people ask, where is God, they should not have to look any further than the body of Christ, the church. We are the advent of God in the world. So how can we do this? How can we be the hands and feet of Jesus this Christmas? Well, one, participate in the giving campaign. Give to those who need, for children in other countries, who who need the hope of Jesus. You can be generous and participate in being the body of Christ. Number, number two, next week we'll have a, a bin in the lobby where you can bring socks. One of the things about the homelessness in our city is, is they simply need acts of kindness where people are bold enough to say, it's important to us that you're warm and dry. And so you can bring socks as one small way of being the body of Christ in the world. And number two, probably the most radical and subversive thing you can do is join a community. Gather together with other believers around a table, most likely on a Thursday night, eat together, practice the way of Jesus together, And then starting in February, those groups will be uh, involved in mission, caring for refugee families, uh, hosting meals for people in need, caring for uh, families in our city, being the hands and feet of Jesus. So if you'd like to do that, you can scan the QR code on on the screen, join a community, and and join one in January. But let me leave you with this blessing from St. Teresa of Avila as the worship band comes back up. St. Teresa of Avila writes, Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. You are the eyes with which he looks on his world with compassion. You are the feet with which he walks to do good. You are the hands with which he blesses the world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Would you guys stand with me?